This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hi and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick and I cover the courts for Slate. This past Thursday saw the end of the most important term in modern Supreme Court history, gaveling the term to a close amid street protests, the arrests of protesters, legitimacy questions around the court, scandals around judicial spouses, and the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer and the swearing in of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman in the Supreme Court's history. I, Ketanji Brown Jackson, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. On the way to this week, the court has brought us the end of Roe v. Wade, the demise of Lemon versus Kurtzman, the impossibility of enforcing Miranda warnings, and the ascendancy of new gun rights. On Thursday, the last two cases of the term came down in a kind of split-the-baby match set. Small win for the Biden administration on the Remain in Mexico policy and a loss for the EPA's effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. On the way out the door, the court agreed to hear a North Carolina case about the independent state legislature doctrine. This is a Hail Mary legal theory that could throw the 2024 election into chaos. Later on in the show, we will be talking to Amy Westervelt. She's an investigative journalist who focuses on climate and the systems and interests working against climate justice, about how the sausage of the West Virginia versus EPA case got made, and what it signals for the future. And Slate Plus subscribers will have a chance to listen in on my conversation with Mark Joseph Stern about some of the cases we couldn't get to in the main show, including that Remain in Mexico decision and the stunning implications of Moore v. Harper. That's the challenge to congressional maps in North Carolina rooted in the independent state legislature doctrine. That segment is accessible only to Slate Plus members. Thank you for being the support that we need right now. We're going to start, though, with the fallout from Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. That's the abortion case. And the news just a week later of clinics in crisis, Plan B not being dispensed, increasing talk of punishing women for everything from miscarriages to the ordering of medication abortions, and even draft rules that would punish journalists who advocate for how to terminate a pregnancy. Believe it or not, my friends, we have been here before. Surveilling and punishing women and criminalizing their pregnancies is a storied American legal tradition. Joining us now is Dorothy Roberts. She is the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. Her pathbreaking work in law and public policy focuses on urgent social justice issues around policing and family regulation, science, medicine, and bioethics. Dorothy is the author of more than 100 scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as co-editor of six books, 
on topics ranging from constitutional law to women in the law. She's also the author of four books, including Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. And her most recent book is called Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World, published by Basic Books 2022. So first and foremost, Thank you so much for being with us on the show. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm really excited about it. So I want to start by confessing that I read Torn Apart for the first time, I think just when I saw you at the end of April, it was a few short weeks before the Dobbs draft came down. And still, I have to say, it didn't really hit me until rereading it this week how very much your work on policing and surveillance and the destruction of the Black family is just inextricably bound up with this larger American story around reproductive rights and privacy. And, you know, you describe, and we'll talk about your book, but this just persistent pattern that we see everywhere if you are Black and American around criminalizing and surveilling pregnancy, cutting social programs to ensure that there's poverty, spying on families, state sanctioned spying on families. And I think that a lot of white women are not really clear on both that history and in a very, I don't want to say this in an alarmist way, Dorothy, but in a deep way, the future. And with that sort of massive framing and, and check me if I'm wrong on any of it, I guess I first wanted just your top line thoughts on the Dobbs decision and how you place it in the context of all this work you've been doing on Black women and Black bodies for decades. I think you framed it very well, Dahlia, that the Dobbs decision by allowing abortion to be a crime is part of a long-lasting agenda of criminalizing people's reproductive decisions. Uh, my work is focused mainly on criminalizing Black women's reproductive decisions, their lives, their bodies. And this goes back all the way to the period of enslavement. And it involves not only compelled pregnancy, the exploitation of Black women's reproductive labor, but also it involves devaluing Black women's childbearing decisions and punishing them for having children, including mass sterilization abuse. And then with my most recent work on the family policing system, or what's called the child welfare system, although it has nothing to do really with protecting children or improving their welfare, that is a massive surveillance system that is all about accusing, investigating, disrupting, destroying families that's targeted at Black communities and has been especially assaulting Black mothers. One of the chief consequences of criminalizing pregnancy is that it wants us all to turn in to report people we suspect of seeking abortions, whether in the state or leaving the state. And this is how the family regulation system operates. Where we are now with the Dobbs decision 
making it clear that there is no constitutional right to abortion, but it's reasoning that the Constitution doesn't protect freedom over our bodies. That is the opportunity now for states to radically expand this criminalization that's been building up really for centuries, but again, with a concerted right-wing campaign in the last couple decades. Professor Catherine Frankie came on the show after Dobbs was argued, and she really reminded us that these rights to bodily integrity, to family autonomy, to bodily dignity, and the ability to raise your children as you see fit and to abort have always been ephemeral in this country, all through history, and certainly in some jurisdictions. You know, she was very pointed in saying Roe was a paper right if you were a black woman in Mississippi and Alabama long before Dobbs came down. And I just want to sort of help orient this conversation around what you're about to describe to us, what you describe in all of your work, not just this most recent book, is a reality that I think a lot of people didn't know didn't start happening last week with Dobbs. That's absolutely right. Much of my work, my book, Killing the Black Body, for example, supported the legal right to abortion, but it also focused more so on the vast ways in which Black women's reproduction has been regulated, controlled, devalued since the time of slavery, but through multiple policies leading into the 21st century, and not just the inability to access abortion because of structures, uh, poverty, inability to pay for it. And of course, the Supreme Court held very soon after Roe versus Wade, that there was no legal right to funding for abortion. So we already knew early on that this was a limited right. But in the case of Black women, just as much the punishment for having children and state policies that sought to deter or prevent Black women from having children, a federal government policies that encouraged coercing Black women to be sterilized uh, all throughout the 1960s and 1970s. Doctors who tricked Black women into being sterilized, sterilized them without their consent. A long history of this, as well as the prosecutions then in the late 1980s into the 1990s, with Black mothers uh, who were pregnant and smoked crack cocaine in the late 1980s, then stepping up in the 1990s, and the prosecutions of women for stillbirths and miscarriages, which I explained as punishing Black women for having babies and part of this longstanding history of penalizing, devaluing Black women's childbearing. So today we see that there is very clearly an anti-abortion right-wing strategy of reproductive control that includes both the criminalization of 
people who want to have babies and the criminalization of those seeking abortions. You know, if we recognize this, the harms of Dobbs are even more catastrophic and, you know, call us to be more expansive in our understanding of reproductive freedom and our fight for it. You're describing, if I'm hearing you correctly, in this moment, this Gordian knot where on the one hand, we are criminalizing, surveilling, prosecuting abortion. On the other hand, we are policing and criminalizing motherhood, which more and more will lead to more and more impoverished mothers. There's no way out of this double bind you're describing. Well, there's no way out for individuals especially those who are already vulnerable to and suffering from structural inequalities. But it also tells us that our fight has to be more holistic, collaborative, collective. And it has to understand that the movement to abolish prisons and family policing is connected to the movement for reproductive justice. It means that we have to strategize differently about how to fight back. Our movement cannot be just about ensuring the legal protections of the most privileged people to have access to high quality health care and abortion services. It has to be about creating a society that truly supports freedom, and that includes the legal right to abortion, but it also has to include creating a society that supports people's lives and meets human needs and dismantles these systems like the family policing system, like the prison industrial complex. We have to understand how criminalization is connected to the fallout of the Dobbs decision. And criminalization expands beyond the criminalization of abortion. It's also the criminalization of having children, the criminalization of being a mother in a racist, white supremacist society that doesn't meet people's needs, but instead blames, blames mothers for the hardships that their children face. All of this is connected. You know, we can see, for example, the connection between family separation and compelled pregnancy in the way that adoption is being promoted as the solution to both. Why is it that we are in a time where families are being routinely torn apart by a so-called child welfare system. And the answer embedded in federal policy is to get those children adopted, take them from their family caregivers and get them adopted, not to support families, but to tear families apart and place children up for adoption. At the same time, we see adoption being promoted as the solution to compel pregnancy. What does Justice Amy Coney Barrett say in the Dobbs argument? And Alito puts this in the majority opinion in Dobbs. The answer is to be compelled to carry a pregnancy to term 
and then turn over the baby to a so-called safe haven to be adopted. And he has the nerve to put in a footnote that this will ease the demand for adoptable children. Why is it that we see this so-called solution being promoted? Because it is a way of diverting attention from the deep structural reasons why there are children with unmet needs, blaming primarily mothers and especially Black mothers for it, and then supporting policies that control their reproductive lives, whether they have children or they want to terminate the pregnancy and turn to a private solution of adoption, which has always been primarily children going from less privileged families into more privileged families. This is an agenda that supports a white male elite against everyone else and supports a view of society that says caregivers are not to be supported. They are to be blamed. And we will not acknowledge the structural reasons why mothers are struggling to take care of their children, why it is that the result of Dobbs is going to be more children with unmet needs. And this doesn't mean that abortion is the solution to childhood poverty. It means that banning abortion is going to increase childhood poverty. And I just want to commend to listeners the New York Times piece, July 1st, who will help care for Texas's post-Roe babies, which is essentially just a materialization of the point that you just made, which is forcing women who cannot afford to have three children to have a fourth, even if a crisis pregnancy center gives her diapers and, you know, a little bit of a respite, in no way solves her material needs. And there's no system to move in and solve that. And one of the things I just wanted to point out to listeners is that your book starts with this, and I should be clear, I think you're clear up front, that your book is a real call for an abolition of the existing child welfare state, and we'll, we'll get to that because it's a dramatic call. But I think one of the things that you start with is a statistic. A recent study by the American Journal of Public Health finds that 53% of all black children in the United States will experience a child welfare investigation by the time they're 18th. That's almost twice the prevalence for white children. Both of those statistics are astounding. Yes, it's, it is absolutely astounding. That is a huge number of children and families under investigation. And we have to remember that these investigations are traumatic, they're disruptive. Children are often strip searched during them. Every aspect of a family's lives becomes subject to inspection by the state. And they often end in family separation and could eventually end in the permanent severing of family ties and compelling people to carry pregnancies to term is only going to increase the number of families under surveillance because 
the very families who are being investigated, mostly for neglect, which is confused with poverty, are the very ones who are suffering and struggling the most because of structural inequities. I think it's important to note that the very states that have trigger laws, that are banning abortion, that are placing the most severe restrictions on abortion, are the very ones that have the highest maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates, states in the South that also have the largest share of Black populations. And the Black maternal mortality rate is three to four times higher than for white women. That's deaths by pregnancy-related causes. Now, before Roe v. Wade, the reason that bans on abortion caused deaths was largely because of unsafe abortions. Today, it's probably going to be mostly because of unsafe pregnancies and women forced to carry a pregnancy to term under unsafe conditions because of the circumstances of their lives, but also because of the fear that this decision is going to put on doctors and healthcare providers to take good care of pregnant women because of the fear that they might be criminalized for it. You know, it's just atrocious to even say that, that a doctor would be afraid to care for the life of someone because of fear they would be criminalized for caring for someone's life. It, I just say in those words, that should be that should be seen as so abominable we wouldn't even think about it in a so-called civilized democratic society. So these states that are banning abortion are the ones that are the riskiest for black women to be pregnant. They have the highest poverty rates. They have the highest childhood poverty rates. They have the worst healthcare systems. They have the fewest supports for struggling families. And so the contradiction of compelling pregnancy in a state that has the worst care for birthing people and where the death rates of Black women from pregnancy-related causes are the highest tells us that the outcome of Dobbs and all the surrounding context we've been talking about is deadly, especially for Black women and also for Indigenous women, for trans people, for other marginalized people, exploited people who suffer the most under deep structural inequities in this nation. Go ahead and ban us in Texas, because I guess this is the critical race theory component of your book. But I think one of the points you make is that breaking up Black families and policing Black bodies was always uh, the key to autocracy and repression. And it goes, you know, to the colonial era. 
And the part of your book that I confess almost killed me on a second reading is the section called Design, because it's so clear it was built to be exactly this way. And these claims that you make, and, and the history is, is, is not in dispute, dovetails with conversations we've had on this show with David Gans and the work of Peggy Cooper Davis and Michelle Goodwin and Michelle Alexander, that the tearing apart of Blackies was the point economically. It was the point in terms of control. And enslaved parents would endure horrific depredations and abuse in order to keep their families from being separated. And as you note, and as we've talked about on this show, the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendment attempted to allow former slaves to establish families free from the control and abuse of white people. And I guess... Given that you're pointing that out again, I guess my first question to you is, is all of this history just lost to Justice Alito and the five justices in the... I mean, when they purport to be doing history and traditions and text, and it's clear what the 13th and the 14th Amendment intended to do and why, and it's just nowhere in this majority opinion. They have completely completely ignored what animated the 13th and 14th Amendments, that the 13th Amendment ended slavery and involuntary servitude. And of course, compelling someone to carry a pregnancy to term is a form of involuntary servitude. The 14th Amendment made Black people citizens with equal rights in the United States. And it was added to guarantee the freedom of emancipated people. It was written by and fought for by abolitionists. So to write that there is nothing in the Constitution that supports the right to reproductive autonomy is simply false. It is present in the 13th and 14th Amendments. And we also have to remember the history that led to those amendments was a history a forced pregnancy by Black women, that the slavery institution relied on the forced reproductive labor of Black women. It relied on the legal authority of white enslavers to control Black families. And they had the legal right from the moment that Black people were in chains on the auction block to sell off family members separately. They had the legal right to break apart a family on the plantation. They could sell off children to whomever they wanted to apart from their parents. They had legal authority over Black children. The Black parents had no legal right to raise their children the way they wanted to. They could be punished, the parents and the children, in front of each other. So it was routine for white enslavers to beat Black parents in front of their children to prove that the enslaver had authority over the children. They could rape Black children. Black girls were routinely sexualized and raped without any power of the parents to prevent it. And yes, Black mothers and fathers did resist. Black mothers resisted in part by having abortions against the will of 
their enslavers. They fought back. They escaped when they could. But it was legal to have control over Black people's reproductive labor during the slavery era. And that was what was overturned, supposedly ended by the Reconstruction Amendments. And so for the majority of justices to find no support for reproductive autonomy in the Constitution is a false rewriting of history. And it is a atrocious ignoring and dismissing of the fight for reproductive liberation that Black people and their allies engaged in leading up to the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments. I think another important aspect of this is to look at what happened after the Reconstruction Amendments were enacted and a white supremacist backlash sought to undo them. And they did effectively eviscerate the 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment by effectively exploiting Black people's labor through the criminal punishment system and through child apprenticeship. So many prison abolitionists have brought to the public's attention the way in which mass incarceration began with the Black codes, including arresting Black people for everyday activities and putting them on chain gangs and leasing them out through the convict leasing system to white-dominated corporations to work to death for them. Less attention has been paid to the child apprenticeship system, which was also used by white supremacists to regain authority over Black children and to extract their labor. And this was performed by courts that held that Black parents were neglectful and that their children would be better off back under the supervision of white former enslavers. And tens of thousands of Black children were taken from their families under court order and placed in the supervision control of former enslavers, sometimes their own former enslavers. To me, this is the foundation of our modern so-called child welfare system, what I call a family policing system. It continues to be a legalized form of taking Black children away from their families and putting them under the authority of the state. And that's why these numbers of 53% of Black children being subjected to investigations by this system, more than one in 10 Black children will be taken from their families during their childhoods under this family policing system. And Black children and Indigenous children have the highest rates of child removal, but also of termination of parental rights. And like the control of reproductive lives, like compelled pregnancies, This is also a form of punishing 
Black mothers for hardships to their children that are caused by structural racism, by poverty, by racial capitalism, by privatization, by neoliberal policies that have eviscerated the services and supports that the government should be providing and have been relying on market-based approaches to caring for children. This is something that affects all of us. We all live in a society now that is more brutal, that, that is becoming even more a police state where we're called on to spy on our neighbors and report them to the police, where we don't have the supports for families that we should have, where we have the highest rate of maternal mortality in the so-called developed world. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty. We have the highest rate of family separations. We have the highest rate of termination of parental rights. This is the kind of brutal society we have that Dobbs has allowed to expand. I feel like it behooves us to just say that all of the history we've described as applied to former enslaved people and Black children plays out with respect to Native children. And just this past week, the Supreme Court dealt a blow to tribal sovereignty in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. Um, again, this long-standing centuries-long practice of forcible removal of Native children from their tribes, and as you write, the federal government enacting policies to steal Native children from their tribal communities, putting them in schools. And all of this kind of happens in conjunction with what you talked about earlier, you know, the Indian Adoption Project. Here's, you know, our shout-out again to Amy Coney Barrett, this explicit policy of having Native children adopted by white parents as though this is a win-win. And so it's not just, as you've said, it's not just Black families. It's vulnerable families. It's poor families. It's the folks we should be working hardest to take care of that continue to be treated as though their babies are part of some, you know, lottery system where white families can adopt. We should emphasize the way in which family separation, child removal, was used by the U.S. government officially as a military strategy, a weapon of war, at the same time that child apprenticeship was stealing Black children from their newly emancipated families, that that very same time the U.S. government was waging so-called Indian wars to dispossess Native tribes, to steal their land. And they came upon the military strategy of child removal. Uh, and that went on during the late 1800s and then into the 20th century when the federal government began an adoption policy of deliberately claiming that Native children were being neglected and through the child welfare system, removing them at extremely high numbers from their tribes, even decimating some tribes as a result of so much child removal to be placed in white-run orphanages or with white families. And this policy went on until the 1970s 
when Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that is the law that the Supreme Court has been eviscerating in a couple decisions. And then now in this latest decision has weakened tribal sovereignty even more. There is a long history of child removal as a weapon to destroy Black and Native communities. I I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to ask you to respond to Clarence Thomas and his persistent claims that abortion should be criminalized. Indeed, we should keep moving the line for fetal endangerment to more and more draconian places. And he deliberately roots this in claims that I think have been pretty widely debunked by historians about the connection between race and eugenics. And I I just feel that I need you to answer it because it persistently goes unanswered, uh, at least in the Supreme Court doctrine. Clarence Thomas is simply wrong on the history, and it is an immoral, outrageous argument to claim that banning abortion has anything to do with Black people's freedom. It's the opposite. Abortion was never used as an instrument of eugenics. Sterilization was. And believe me, the anti-abortion right-wing people who want to keep Black women from having abortions also would be very happy with them being sterilized. And in fact, banning abortion pushes Black women toward sterilization because they no longer can be secure in controlling their reproductive bodies. They no longer can be secure in managing their own pregnancies. So therefore, uh, if you're in that kind of desperate situation, which is what bans on abortion push people into, you're more likely to say, I better get sterilized to avoid pregnancy. If you're facing being criminalized for terminating a pregnancy, that is an incentive to sterilization, which is the always been the tool of eugenesis, not abortion. Abortion gives people control over their lives. They don't want people to have freedom to get abortions? They never have. So Thomas is just wrong. He's wrong on the history. He's wrong on his understanding of what freedom means. And he should just quit. You know, and let me say something else about this. One of the tools of the anti-abortion campaign has been to stigmatize and shame Black women for having abortions. And They have engaged in a campaign that put up billboards claiming that Black women were complicit in Black genocide. Again, this is a complete lie and uh, insult to Black women's freedom and autonomy. But one of the posters they put up went something like this. The most dangerous place for an African-American is the womb. And it included a picture of a young African-American girl. And that message that Black women's wombs are dangerous is the same message used by eugenicists 
to support sterilizing Black women. It's the same message used by the people who promoted the Black welfare queen image, that Black women only had babies to get a welfare check and didn't really care about their children. It's the same message about Black women who gave birth to the so-called crack baby, which again was a complete falsehood, but was fuel for policies that prosecuted Black women for being pregnant and using drugs. The idea that Black women's wombs are dangerous, that Black women do not make good mothers, that we are harmful to our children, that we pass down a dangerous lifestyle to our children, or that our decisions to terminate a pregnancy are dangerous for Black children and the Black community. Those are all the same message. So again, to say that bans on abortion in any way support Black women's liberties or freedom is an atrocious distortion of history, reality, and the fight that Black women have been engaged in for reproductive justice from the time of slavery. It's ironic, Dorothy, because your book locates the beginning of the pipeline. You know, it's not sort of, you know, the the just foster care to prison. It's, you know, the welfare state to foster care to prison. And you've just started the pipeline in the womb. And I think that that is really, really an incredibly painful image to sit with. Uh, I do want to give you an opportunity because we've teased it and haven't talked about it. Your book is a call for abolition of the child welfare system. And I'm guessing a lot of folks like me initially uh, approach that with some trepidation. And I also want to say you have spent decades trying to reform this system. You are not trying to tear down a thing that you have not worked harder than anyone to reform. But I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what that abolition looks like. Okay. It's important to recognize that abolition means both dismantling an unjust system that exists today and also replacing it with something better that we've been building. So it's not just tearing down the system that's in place now that's supposed to protect children from harm, and we know doesn't do that and, in fact, inflicts harms on children and their families, but it's also building a better approach that actually supports families, that actually cares for children, that actually keeps children safe. So there shouldn't be any fear about tearing down this system. First of all, we should be anxious to end the suffering that this system is causing on millions of families. We know that these harms exist. It's well-documented that children who spend time in foster care on average have bad outcomes. Yes, some children age out of foster care, return to their families and do well, but not because of anything the system did. It's because they have managed to overcome the harms that the system inflicted on them. And they're more likely to be harmed in multiple ways, to be houseless, to have low incomes or no incomes, to end up in juvenile detention, to end up in prison, to have mental health problems, just numerous ways in which the trauma of being torn from your family and put in an institution 
that does not care for children harms people. So we want to end this harm to children and their families. And at the same time, we aren't saying leave children in the state they're in now. First of all, we recognize that the main harms to children in America don't come from their parents. They come from childhood poverty and structural racism and other structures that are designed to disadvantage children, especially Black children, Indigenous children, impoverished children. And those are the very children that are targeted by the system. So we want to address the needs of children in ways that actually provide for their needs, which is not what the family policing system does. The family policing system is not designed to actually support families and provide for children's needs. Most of the children taken from their families are taken on grounds of neglect, which is usually conflated with poverty. Neglect is defined in most states as failing to meet the material needs of children. And most families that don't meet the material needs of children don't meet them because they can't afford to. And so when a caseworker gets a call that a child is living in a homeless shelter, for example, the answer is to take the child away from the family, not to provide housing. So abolishing the family policing system means instead of traumatizing a family like that, the answer is to provide housing for that family. And when it comes to physical and sexual abuse of children, which again is a small part of why children are removed, but providing better for families would drastically reduce those numbers. For example, giving mothers a way to find safety from domestic violence would reduce harms to children far more than what happens now, which is to make mothers fearful of getting help because they're afraid their children will be taken from them and put into a more harmful situation in foster care. So uh, we can address domestic violence in better ways, which is what anti-carceral feminists have been advocating for. Transformative justice that actually looks at what are the sources of violence in homes? What are the root causes? How can we address that? How can we address the sexist, toxic ideas about women in America that continue to foment violence against us. That is not addressed by the child welfare system. How can we hold people accountable in communities in ways that don't rely on taking children away and putting people in prison, which we know has not worked to keep children, and families safe. And again, there's a parallel with what we have to do in this time post-Dobbs, which is building supportive networks that will help people in need, that they can trust, uh, that aren't built on this police state surveillance approach to meeting people's needs, whether it's the need to get an abortion or it's the need for food and clothing and secure housing for your child. 
Dorothy, I'm so glad that you ended where we began, which is just this bracing and uncomfortable reminder that for so many people who are experiencing for the first time this week the reality of what it would mean for the government to intrude into your home, into your doctor's office, into your very womb, and and police those things and punish you— this has been going on for a very long time, and it has been painful for a lot of people for a very long time. And I think one of the reasons I wanted you here was to help remind us that it can stop, but it requires acknowledging that this has been the status quo for a long time. Dorothy Roberts is the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. She is author of more than 100 scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as co-editor of six books. She's the author of four books, including Killing the Black Body, Race Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. And the book we've been discussing today is called Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition can build a safer world published by uh, published by basic books in 2022 and a book that reads entirely different in july of 2022 than it did in april thank you so very much dorothy for decades of work and for really a clarion voice on something we all need to hear right now oh thank you dahlia thank you for your voice as well and the opportunity to be on your show and now to climate change. It feels fitting, in a sense, that the court's term ended with a case that will make it harder to regulate carbon emissions by using a deregulatory theory that has no meaningful basis in the law. Having been told that textualism, originalism, and judicial humility require the overturning of multiple precedents, this week we learned that this only really applies sometimes. With regard to an impending climate disaster, the court arrogates to itself the power to decide. And as Justice Elena Kagan pointed out at the end of a very angry dissent, quote, whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. And let's say the obvious. The stakes here are high. Yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court appoints itself, instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. End quote. West Virginia versus EPA was a challenge to the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan, which attempted to regulate carbon emissions at coal-fired power plants. That plan is not actually in effect. That's because the Supreme Court paused the plan in 2016. The Trump administration later repealed it and replaced it with a far more forgiving program. And then President Biden's EPA chose not to fight to maintain it. The EPA sought to issue new regulations targeting emissions, but in a 6-3 to three decision this week, authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court not only ruled on the Clean Power Plan, but also threw into question what kind of future interventions are even possible. In so doing, the court ended the term by achieving a dream, slowly strangling regulatory agencies. But let's be clear, this was not a knockout punch, so much as it was a warning shot. And joining us to discuss the decision in West Virginia versus EPA is investigative journalist Amy Westervelt. 
Her beat is climate, and she's the founder of the podcast network, Critical Frequency, and hosts the Drilled podcast. After the decision came down on Thursday, she tweeted that it's bad, but not super bad, and I am very much here for that explanation. So, Amy, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I guess I want to start because it's possible that the wiggly line sketch I just gave of this regulatory constitutional procedural nightmare is not adequate to the task. So is there anything that you want to sort of amplify before we talk about what the court did today? The one thing that's important to note is that the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions is currently still intact. This ruling does not get rid of that. So that's good news including CO2 emissions and including emissions from existing power plants. So all of that remains intact, which is why I was like, wow, could have definitely been worse. Honestly, I think that that's more a function of this case being a strange case for the court to even take up than it is a function of what they want to do. So I think that that's kind of the starting issue for our purposes, which is, as Justice Kagan said, kind of pointedly in her dissent, there was just no need for the court to take this case. And as a consequence, if you're talking about a rule that isn't in effect and a Biden administration that's not fighting for it and a court that's sort of reaching out to take it, the really cynical view of this whole enterprise is this is just because the court could take it and because the court could move the goalposts on what regulatory agencies can do, right? Yep. The most important phrase in Robert's opinion is, this is a major question doctrine case. I think that, A, they're going to totally point to this case as a precedent when they take up the Clean Water Act next session. (laughs) And B, this is part of the whole endeavor to get rid of the quote-unquote administrative state, right? Whenever there's a major question, so an agency does something that has a big political or economic impact, the court can weigh in. It's like a bad harbinger, even though the ruling itself is quite narrow. You know, it's very focused on Section 111D and the Clean Air Act and what that says and how it can be interpreted. But I feel like there's a lot of indications here that when they get a a case that will allow them to do more, they absolutely will. And one of the things that I was interested in asking about is all the scuttlebutt around this was that the court was going to use this case to scupper Chevron deference. And instead, we don't get Chevron, we get the major questions doctrine. But I wonder if from your perspective, there's any sort of significance to the fact that the court didn't use this to whittle away whatever Chevron deference is left, but instead turned to this holy judge-made invented non-constitutional major questions issue. So, I'm just sort of curious how you read the fact that everybody was waiting for them to do one thing and then they did a different thing, but both would have had the same effect. I actually feel like the major questions doctrine has maybe even a broader effect and allows them to go after all of the agencies and not just the EPA. I also think it's a weird nod to Scott Pruitt, who's the one that injected the phrase major questions doctrine into this whole case to begin with. And just sort of like a nod to the whole 
RAGA network. So the Republican Attorneys General Association has really been pushing for major questions doctrine to be used in exactly this kind of way. So I I think they're bringing climate more in line with the entire right wing mission versus, you know, Chevron deference. Everyone was like, are they going to overturn Massachusetts versus EPA? And it's like, they don't need to, they can do something much bigger. (laughs) Right. They don't even mention like, it's as though that case never happened. Yeah. So, yeah. so talk a little bit about this history, because I think it's important that this is yeah. not a one-off. It's not a two-off. This is a kind of decades-long mm. project and help sketch out who the players are and what the game is. Yeah, it is a decades-long project. And I think it's important for people to understand not to be the world's biggest buzzkill, but like... It's also going to go on for another couple decades. This is not the end of it. They're just getting their sea legs here. So the Republican Attorneys General Association was started in the 90s as a reaction to the tobacco litigation back then. At the time, it was John Cornyn, who was the Attorney General of Texas back then, and the Attorney Generals of Alabama and South Carolina, who looked at this and said, dang, we should have had that idea. (laughs) We should have been coordinating more. And we don't want any other industry to be subject to some kind of a coordinated legal attack by the Democrats. So step one was let's get more Republican attorneys general elected. They did that. They spent their first 10 years or so doing that. Today, Republican attorneys general outnumber Democrats slightly. Like it's not huge, but slightly. Then in 2010, when Citizens United happened, they became a massive recipient of dark money. So this is where Leonard Leo, who ran the Federalist Society forever, for example, and who is now on to his next venture, is putting a lot of his money is into the pack that's associated with RAGA. And the reason for that is that attorneys general are able to file these constitutional challenges whenever they want, right? And they get other attorneys general to come in. So anytime you see like, three or more Republican attorneys general, you know that this is not like in the case of West Virginia versus EPA, this is not like some coal operator that was like, it's going to be too expensive for me to comply with the clean power plan. You know, it's like, this was a coordinated industry funded effort to block climate policy. You see it all over in a lot of the cases that are on the docket and that are coming up next session too. These are political cases that attorneys general are filing and that are largely funded by the industries that have the most to gain from shifting the law. I mean, Leonard Leo has said in public that he would like to go back to a pre-New Deal era. And that's the plan that they are trying to enact right now. He spent 20 years getting the right judges in place, including half the Supreme Court bench. And now he's got his litigation arm bringing the cases. It's a very, very well-coordinated machine. That's why I'm like, well, if the perfect case for blocking any kind of climate policy isn't already in the pipeline on its way to the Supreme Court, it will be soon because that's that's how they operate. One point that you, I think, 
whizzed by, but it's worth saying is this wasn't coal companies. They, I mean, folks were in compliance. This is a handful of states. And I think the other point you make that is the one that I know Sheldon Whitehouse makes all the time, which is the same dark money that seated these justices is the dark money that pays for these attorney generals to bring these cases. So it's a perfect circle of self-interest. Yep. And for the raft of amicus briefs that help them convince the court to take these cases. I mean, I think it's important, too, to understand that the people that don't want to see climate regulation are the same ones that want to whittle away voting rights, that want to get rid of abortion, that want to push prayer in schools. It's all the same groups funding all this stuff. The Brackeen case that we're going to see next session, that's a RAGA case. Masquerading is a family law case. Right. You're talking about Brackeen versus Holland on the docket for next term, which concerns the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act that governs adoption cases for Native American children, right? Right. So they're like behind a lot of the of the big cases that we're seeing starting to, to challenge long-held precedents and, and major norms. It's interesting because, you know, Leonard Leo moves from seating folks on the bench to vote suppression, right? Which is just exactly your point, that it is all different iterations of the same project, and then it gets posited as a family law case, or it gets posited as an environmental case. It's all part of, as you're saying, dismantling the regulatory state and sort of enacting this conservative agenda. I wonder if you can talk, based on your reading... And now we are stipulating that whatever the major questions doctrine is, it was hatched in a lab for this purpose. It is not something that Jefferson and Madison were, you know, spitballing about. Yeah, it's Um, not an originalist uh, take, right? No, (laughs) I don't even know what the rule is. I mean, I'm here asking you because I guess John Roberts... 6-3 opinion says that clearly this is a major question, and then there's like a lot of words about extraordinariness. But going forward, does this signal to you what, if you are the EPA seeking to not run afoul of the major questions doctrine, what not extraordinary things you could still regulate? Yes, actually, I have a good answer for this, which is the Toxic Substances Control Act. So there's a petition that was filed a couple weeks ago asking the EPA to make a determination about whether greenhouse gases pose a a risk to human health or the environment. And they have 60 days to respond to that. I highly doubt a Biden EPA will come out and flat out say that no, greenhouse gases pose no threat to the environment or human health. So there's something is going to come out of that. And the thing with Tosca is that it was just reauthorized in 2016 with bipartisan support, including language that very explicitly says, once the EPA has determined that something has a risk to human health or the environment, they must commence rulemaking that does not Um, take into account any kind of political or financial concern. That's very key because the way the court has defined major questions doctrine to date is any agency rule that has a large impact on political or economic situations in the U.S. That's like the qualifier, right? So if the rule explicitly says you can't think about that, you cannot consider 
political or economic impact, I think it would be hard for the court to then apply the major questions doctrine to that because the, the agency is being told specifically to ignore political and economic impact. So I think that's one way. I also think it's important for people to remember that the EPA already regulates particulate matter and particulate matter is created by the same thing that creates greenhouse gases, which is the combustion of fossil fuels. So that rule has already been tightened by the Biden EPA. That goes into effect later this year. I'm 100% sure it will be the next target of various conservative groups. But it's a way harder sell than climate, <laughs> you know, to say, actually, air pollution is fine. So there's that. I have also heard people starting to say that climate activists should apply pressure to the Fed because the, the Fed actually has quite a few things at its disposal that it could do that would make it harder to develop fossil fuel projects and easier to develop clean energy projects. And SCOTUS won't touch the Fed. What What are some of those powers that the Fed could do? Like, so for example, the, like um, the, the discount rate that they give. So when banks need a loan from the Fed to shore up their deposits, right, the Fed could say, you can't use your fossil fuel investments as part of any of that. We won't guarantee loans that are backed with fossil fuel investments. They could also give a more generous rate to clean energy projects. There's a couple of details in their financing laws that allow them to support certain types of projects more than others. So I feel like that is an area that's been mostly ignored. We talk about the Fed when it comes to interest rates and inflation and gas prices and all that stuff. But actually, there's this whole other way that they could be doing more. Um, and then at the state level, there's actually quite a bit still going on. California just passed $50 billion in climate funding. And yes, I know like one state can't fix the whole problem and can't play at the international stage, but they can provide some amount of market leadership help to, to spur technological innovation and stuff like that, too. There's also, even within the Clean Air Act, Section 115 says that if the United States is part of an international agreement that has to do with pollutants, it is the Paris Climate Accord, right, um, that like the EPA is authorized to do what it needs to do to address U.S. sources of that pollution. Personally, I kind of feel like they should move on from the Clean Air Act. It's, it is very vague. It's actually intentionally vague because when it was written, they tried to, to plan for a situation like this, right? That like, we don't know what the hell other pollutants companies are going to spew into the air and we want to give the agency broad authority. But the way that's being interpreted now is that they don't have explicit authority. So, you know, um, I think the Clean Air Act is not going to be super helpful here. Amy, I want to ask you about Justice Kagan's dissent. It's a pretty grim recitation of facts that science kind of agrees on. And it feels like it's very much following this pattern of dissents, which is like, this is stipulated to be true. It's really bad. Um, and kind of really trying to put it on the majority, like you had the option to not stick a fork in this, and you did. And I'm just wondering, as a messaging proposition, that's a pretty, that is a pretty stark message coming from the U.S. Supreme Court, even when it comes from the dissent. 
I was happy to see it because in the majority opinion, they don't even mention the term climate change. Like it's wild how much they sort of sidestep that entire issue. What Kagan did was put the whole thing back into reality, get it out of the weeds of like Section 111D and the Clean Air Act and into the realm of, yeah, asbestos is not actually like a great precedent to point to or acid rain or whatever these things are. They're so much smaller than this. And how the hell else are we supposed to do anything about it if the agency that's tasked with protecting the environment is not allowed to do even the most basic things that it's supposed to do here, even though it was a dissent? I think it's important to have that in an opinion from the Supreme Court, because also we're not operating in a vacuum here. You know, there's a lot of international cases, some of which are starting to include American companies. And even for those situations, I feel like it's important to be able to say, look like your own Supreme Court is saying that this is what the science is. Uh, so yeah, I, I've i been appreciating all of Kagan's dissents this session, actually. <laughs> It's so weird. They're yeah. like Wikipedia. I mean, they really are these science, economic reality dumps. Like it's a documentary about what's going on in the world. And then you've got the, you know, ostensibly, you know, principled originalist court just kind of chasing itself in these ever smaller circles of new tests that are invented from nothing. I don't want to say goodbye to you until you talk specifically about what's coming. You mentioned a couple of cases up top, but for listeners, um, what is now we've got this sword of Damocles. It's called the Major Questions Doctrine. It's a sword. I was going to say it has teeth. So it's a, a sword with teeth that is now hanging over whatever is to come. And and walk us through both what's coming up at the Supreme Court in the in the next uh, few months and years, and then maybe walk us through side side action that's happening in other courts that may make its way to the court. Yeah. So the next one coming up is a big Clean Water Act case. And I fully anticipate that the court will apply major questions doctrine to that case as well. And that has to do with pipelines and their impact on water and how we evaluate the impact of various drilling and fossil fuel projects on water systems and whether or not the EPA has authority there. So I am concerned about that and then also how that will impact the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission because they were supposed to by now start to actually implement a policy that was passed years ago that allows them to consider the climate impacts of pipeline projects. So under Trump, FERC interpreted that to mean the immediate climate impacts of building the pipeline, like the emissions connected to trucks driving around with pipes, I guess, and not what it was intended to be, which is obviously the full climate impact that was supposed to be fixed under Biden. And then as part of the whole sort of recapitulation around Russia, Ukraine and gas prices, he 
put that on pause for now. And I expect this Clean Water Act case to have some impact there as well. I also am convinced that one of the climate liability cases, these are cases where a city or a state or a county has said, we have these enormous costs to do with climate adaptation and we don't have the budget to do anything about it. And you guys kept anyone from acting on climate for an extra 20 years. That's made the cost exponentially more. You should kick in some money to help us with that. The defense that the oil companies are using in all of those cases is basically a First Amendment defense. They have a First Amendment lawyer, Ted Boutros, very well-known First Amendment guy, who is the spokesperson for all of the oil companies in these cases. He's technically Chevron's attorney, but he speaks for all of them in every single one of these cases. And I am convinced that this is going to be like the next iteration of Citizens United, that it will get up to the Supreme Court and that they will try to use it to blur the line between fraud and free speech. Wait, wait, just tell me one second what the First Amendment claim is. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. They claim that they have a First Amendment right to say whatever they want about climate change because it is petitioning speech because they have a desired political outcome and that therefore it is covered by the First Amendment, even if it is misleading in some way. Yeah, it's genius. Very of the moment. Very, very of the moment. And they have been laying that groundwork for years. Like Exxon was showing up as an amicus in totally unrelated cases in like 2010, 2013. They filed a brief in the Nike sweatshop case about this exact thing. Petitioning speech is protected by the First Amendment. So I fully anticipate that to be the next big climate case. And with this court... I don't know. Yeah. Ending on a high note. I'm just kidding. I know. I I actually refuse to let you end on a low high note. I refuse because it's just been so freaking bad. So I am going to force you at toothy knife point now to a sword with teeth. I am going to say... Tell our listeners, because really I think this is a bad result and it is really not a catastrophe. And in the hands of Anil Gorsuch, it really could have been a catastrophe. So I just want you to say (laughs) in a sentence to all the folks who are looking at their teenage kids saying the world is going to burn, that it's not that. It's not that. The EPA still has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in a bunch of different ways. Other agencies within the government were not mentioned at all here. That's great news, actually. And there are lots of things that haven't even been attempted yet, even within the Clean Air Act. It, like They could have said you can't use the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and they didn't say that at all. So I actually think it's it's sort of like the best bad case that we could have gotten. I was still holding on to the shred of hope that they would say that cert was improvidently given and we shouldn't even be ruling on this case. But absent that, this was about as least bad as it could be. The least bad it could be. That 
my friends, is the show title. Amy Westervelt is the founder of the podcast network Critical Frequency and hosts the Drilled podcast and is really a must-follow for climate. Amy, I know this has been a hella day for you, so thank you so much for being here to, I think, slightly mollify me and maybe to, like, massively mollify listeners who thought that, quite literally, the world was burning around them. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So now (laughs) we are at the near end of the line here for the term ending amicus conversations. We are going to have a big honking breakfast table. What it all means that we'll drop next week with uh, amazing people with Nico Bowie and Catherine Frankie and Mark Stern. But we want to give our loyal friends at Slate Plus, who have been wonderful supporters and boosters of this show, a little preview of some of the themes and the thoughts that we are going to take out of a term that is like no other, possibly in modern memory, possibly in history. Mark, this was a term that was like no other. Here's Mark Joseph Stern. Hi. Yeah. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Slate Plus listeners, for sticking with us through June. I feel like my emotional state has fluctuated wildly over the course of these episodes, but you and I have landed in a place of, would you say numbness? Is that the right word? I've progressed. I think I was numb when Dobbs came down. Mm. In fact, um, it wasn't until I think Monday morning that I found myself sobbing in a heap. I mean, I was just powering through. I think I've progressed from numb to angry to the point of scaring the neighbors. You? (laughs) Yeah, I think think I would say I've fallen into a sort of disgust mode, disgust and contempt, but not an overtly rageful disgust, more of a kind of, you know, simmer. Ah, simmering disgust. Maybe let's just start with your really good piece from Thursday night, summarizing the last day of the term, the two cases that came down. We talked on the main show about West Virginia versus EPA, but can you talk about the two cases in tandem? The other was the Biden uh, remain in Mexico case that would have allowed, I guess, a single federal district judge to take over all immigration enforcement. Uh, Can you talk about those two cases, maybe explain the remain in Mexico case, but talk about them operating as a whole, as a signal how you perceive this term landing. I think both of those cases are partly designed to show Joe Biden who's boss and to remind his administration that they are not in charge, that at the end of the day, the Supreme Court has a veto over every little thing that the president and his officials want to do. And in the EPA case, that was blazingly obvious because there was, of course, no live regulation for the Supreme Court to strike down. The court was considering the Clean Power Plan, which was Obama's regulation, which never went into effect because the court blocked it in 2016, right before Scalia died. And yet the court still reached out and said, you know what, we're just going to say that this plan would have been illegal 
and really disable the Biden administration from trying to enact a new rule that would accomplish similar goals of limiting carbon emissions at coal-fired power plants and using the Clean Air Act as, I believe, Congress intended to compel states to reduce emissions using a series of tools, including a shift away from dirty energy toward clean energy. Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court just makes up a reason why this case is still a live controversy and then proceeds to present the president and his EPA with an advisory opinion telling them what they can't do, which is try to regulate carbon in this very effective way, without actually saying what they can do. He does not provide a roadmap for other regulations. He does not really flesh out the major questions doctrine, which is the basis of his decision. He does not provide meaningful guidance for Biden to regulate in the future. And I think that he's just maintaining maximum leeway for future decisions to say, we like this, we don't like that, we're vetoing this, we're okay with that. And that leads to the Remain in Mexico case, where a bare five justice majority allowed Joe Biden to finally rescind Donald Trump's horrifically cruel immigration policy, forcing asylum seekers and refugees to remain on the southern side of the border with Mexico in Mexican territory in these awful tent cities filled with crime while they await their asylum hearings. A break from more than a quarter century of practice that has allowed many refugees to enter the country and await their asylum hearings in the United States. And yes, it's good that five justices said, okay, Joe Biden can finally end this zombie Trump policy. But it's really bad that the Supreme Court didn't say this in August when it first had the opportunity to do so. And yet by a six to three vote, forced the Biden administration not only to keep this policy going, but to engage in very sensitive diplomatic negotiations with high-ranking officials from the Mexican government, begging the Mexican government to take in these thousands of refugees and keep them on their territory. You know, the, the, the U.S. has no power to unilaterally force Mexico to hold on to these refugees. And a single federal judge in Texas, as you indicated, Matthew Kazmarak, of course a Trump appointee, was for nearly a year overseeing diplomatic negotiations, forcing these American officials to uh, undergo these talks at threat of, of contempt of court and sanctions. And so this case, too, I think, is designed to remind Biden who's boss, that even when Biden has an obviously winning hand, even when he is so clearly in the right, the conservative majority might still force him to um, remain under its thumb for a year, maybe longer, just so that he remembers anytime he wants to do anything, he has to come crawling on his knees to SCOTUS and beg and prostrate himself and plead for permission from five or six justices. Yeah, I would have a, a couple of glosses and emendations. One is I find it laugh out loud funny that on the last day of the term, the pair of cases that are handed down are about dead laws, right? Laws that, <laughs> yes. you know, zombie laws, as you've said, one that never, you know, I, I, I mean, it's just, it's an astounding thing, one that 
never should have continued to be enforced, as you said, the other that isn't being enforced. And this is what we're fighting about. And it goes to, you know, you and I saying for years that Trump judges would continue to be the dead hand of the Trump administration in a really interesting way, resuscitating Trump era policies uh, over the objection of the Biden administration or forcing the Biden administration to take a position on a policy that it didn't want to adopt. It seems to me to be kind of of a piece with this dead hand. And the other thing that I'm so struck by is that it's the chief justice writing both opinions. And mm. at first blush, it's like, oh, a win for the administration and a loss for the administration. And of course, that goes to this Overton window crazy of what constitutes yes. a win for the only the most surface view of what happened on Thursday would tell you that this is a split the baby, you know, temperate, moderate, you know, middle course. These cases are both insane. And the fact that there were only four insane people on the Remain in Mexico case is not really a split the baby temperate moment. It does raise the question for me, does this signal to you that John Roberts has gone full, if you can't beat him, join him on the YOLO term? In, in a lot of these cases, yes. And I think one of the best examples is the Supreme Court's shadow docket order on Wednesday, reinstating this egregiously racist congressional map drawn by Louisiana Republicans. Louisiana has a black population of about one third, one in, one in three residents is black. And its new congressional map has one majority black district out of six. So um, it is directly designed to dilute and diminish the, the voting power of black residents. Um, and the Supreme Court has said in many past decisions that the Voting Rights Act prohibits that. But uh, the Supreme Court overturned lower court decision that had mandated a new map, essentially reinstating this racist map and ensuring that it will be used in the 2022 elections. And that was a six to three order with the chief joining the other conservatives. And I think that's so interesting because in a nearly identical case just a few months ago out of Alabama, exact same deal, big black population reduced to a single congressional district, all packed in so they wouldn't have substantial political power. The Supreme Court reinstated the racist map, but by a five to four vote. And the chief dissented from that and said, you know, I, I don't like the Voting Rights Act. I don't really think that it prohibits racial gerrymandering, but we haven't established that law yet. And we cannot be using the shadow docket to overrule lower courts and uh, make a substantial impact on elections on the basis of law that doesn't yet exist. But this time, just fast forward a few months from that decision, he just joins them. He, he doesn't bother to write a dissent saying, slow your roll. He doesn't bother to put himself out as the incrementalist who cares about rules and, and procedures in the institution. And so I absolutely think if you look at those cases alongside so many of the merits cases from this term, you see the chief not moving rightward per se, but just shrugging and signing on to stuff that you know he doesn't really support, but feels like there's literally no use in resistance. And so he'll just go ahead with the five reactionaries um, and, and let them remain in the driver's seat because he has no power to stop them anymore. I feel as though you and I both know a whole bunch of constitutional law professors who have no idea what to put on the syllabus next year. And we're going to talk <laughs> about that in one little second. But it does seem to me that there is a monster 
doctoral dissertation for someone in the Chief Justice John Roberts management strategy, which went from I'm going to be a principled voice for moderation and decorum and incrementalism to, well, I can't get my court under control. Everybody's saying I'm a loser, so I guess I'll jump on with the bullies. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Dahlia Lithwick assignment task. Uh, I want to just uh, make one other big, big picture observation and tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, Because I think we've spent a lot of time this term talking about – narrow areas of case law. So like what happened to gun law? What happened to, you know, the wall between church and state? What happened between school funding and and religious school? What happened to the Miranda warning? What happened to tribal sovereignty? And I think if you look at them in those narrow ways, there's just a tendency, and I think this is probably goes to some of, you know, the problem with elite legal education to just Twist yourself into pretzel to be like, okay, this is the new doctrine. We can work with this. Um, and Dorothy Roberts actually just said on the main show that the lawyerly tendency now is like, how can we c- create advice for physicians uh, to determine when a woman is sufficiently close to death that we could terminate a pregnancy? There is a lawyerly tendency to say, what's the new test? And I think that was a little bit your, your point about the major questions doctrine. Nobody knows how to apply it. Uh, if the EPA were trying to put in new regulations, they would have no idea what to do. But I guess I find myself thinking the idea that the court dismantled, you know, the three-part test is now a two-part test and the one-part test is a two-part test and the two-part – and, you know, it's all history and text anyway. And I feel as though is there really – if you're overturning precedent, if you're – putting in place either squish tests or not tests or utterly subjective tests, isn't the actual rule that should be on every con law exam that the police is always going to win, that the Biden administration is always going to lose, that uh, certain sectarian religions are always going to win, that women are always going to lose, people of color are always going to lose, that voting is always going to be for the white people, that the condemned are always just going to die, corporations are always going to win. Like, that's actually the test now, right? Yes, of course. There are winners and losers at this court, and the majority is not subtle about picking sides. And it's also, as I wrote in my article, pretty ruthlessly efficient about handing down victories to the side that it favors. And, And this is where it uh, it, it differs from Congress, where you've got so many people in Congress, they hold all these hearings, they make compromises. You know, sometimes Congress still works. The gun bill had some good stuff in it. It, it had stuff for both sides. It took a, a while to negotiate. You could argue it took 30 years. Um, and, and finally, because of this moment, a bunch of senators came together and made it happen. The Supreme Court doesn't have to wait. The Supreme Court can reach out and grab any case that it wants. As it proved this term, with the clean power plan case, the you know striking down a regulation that doesn't exist, and use it as a vehicle to declare winners and losers, and to say this side wins, this side loses, and to do it in the span of a few months. You know they've been expediting cases more and more, using the shadow docket more and more, just intervening in 
all of the major policy disputes in American life and doing so very quickly, so fast that most people don't even see it happening. And then it's done. And there's no recourse when the court hands down these opinions. No one seriously thinks that Congress is now going to pass a sweeping climate bill that would satisfy every one of John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh's concerns about, you know, the current Clean Air Act. No one seriously thinks that the the court is going to fix the parts of immigration law that the court broke this term. And of course, with constitutional decisions, there's nothing we can do because it's practically impossible to amend the Constitution. And so, yes, I think it's it's important for us to look beyond the text of these tests to the extent that they exist. And, you know, you and I have discussed that the history test is completely subjective. It's not a real test. It's just what five justices want to read into an ambiguous history. But even then, look past it and just look at the trend of who's winning and who's losing. And you can see that the court is not only picking sides, but wielding its power very aggressively to ensure that their side is gathering up win after win. And that just isn't something that I think we have seen in the modern Supreme Court before. So, Mark, with a big sigh, I reluctantly give you more v. Harper, uh, <laughs> the, the case that was granted in the last seconds of the term. I feel like Tell me if I'm wrong. I think Stephen Breyer was out of that building. I'm not sure he put the toilet lid down before he left. I think he just (laughs) bolted. Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in. But the court just gave us a little poison pill to destroy the summer, and that is a grant of a case on the holy, fun, and fanciful, fanciful independent state legislature doctrine. So I just want you to sort of like sing us off into the night, if you would, by telling us this is, it's hard to say that in a term where you do away with women's reproductive freedom and you do away with the wall between church and state and you make it impossible for agencies to regulate, that the most consequential case of them all might just be the one that's coming next fall. It is one of, if not the most important cases relating to American democracy that the Supreme Court has ever heard. It could arguably be even more important than Bush v. Gore. And I should point out that in Bush v. Gore, the majority actually rejected the theory that this case squarely presents um, because it was too crazy and lawless, even for the Bush v. Gore court. So this case involves the independent state legislature theory. It's sometimes called a doctrine, but I don't really believe that it deserves that fancy title. Um, And and it's this idea that state legislatures under the U.S. Constitution have near unlimited power over federal elections. Uh, So elections for Congress and presidential elections, and that they get to set all of the rules. They get to figure out who gets to vote and how. They get to engage in egregious partisan gerrymandering. And there are no checks or balances from another branch of government. Most importantly, state courts cannot enforce state constitutional provisions that protect voting rights and guarantee free elections because that would violate the state legislature's own total authority over the conduct of elections. And so state election boards, potentially secretaries of state, governors, all of these individuals and officials who run elections, who make them 
actually function when it comes time to cast ballots, they would be cut out from the process. They would have no real say and no ability to create substantive or procedural rules. And in an extreme version of this theory, the state legislature can actually just overthrow the will of the people in a presidential race and appoint electors to the electoral college to the losing candidates. And so, you know, this is what Ginny Thomas was telling legislators to do in 2020. Embrace your independence under this theory that Clarence Thomas loves um, and just ignore the results of this of this race and appoint your electors to Donald Trump regardless. That is so frightening. And the reality is that even if the court does not go that far, if it embraces this theory at all, it will give gerrymandered Republican-controlled state legislatures the power to rig every federal election from here to eternity. Yeah, and I think this goes to something you and I have been saying. I know we wrote this after Ginny Thomas, which is January 6th can't be read in isolation from the lawful white shoe establishment Republican effort to do it again in 2024. Right, right. And this is our, our friend Rick Hassan has, has written this piece. You know, the next coup will be much more respectable. It won't be QAnon shamans storming the Capitol. It will be uh, Federalist Society lawyers in suits saying, you know, sorry, like it or not, but this is what James Madison would have wanted. He would have wanted Georgia's legislature to convene a special session and overrule the popular vote in their state. That is what we are barreling toward right now. And everyone should start paying attention to this case immediately because the court took it up well in advance of 2024. It's going to come down in 2023 and it could fund fundamentally change the rules of the game just as we're gearing up for the next presidential race. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and (laughs) slow, deeply worrisome decline of constitutional democracy for us here at the magazine. Mark, uh, I wish you a happy fourth and I thank you for all your work and we will talk next week at the end of term breakfast table. I wish you a happy Canada Day, and I look forward to speaking again. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We'll be back next Saturday with our great big breakfast table end-of-term episode, and I'll be joined by an all-star panel to step back and look at this earth-shattering term in full. Until then, take good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening. <laughs>